Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Last week we looked at the aggregates, a relatively simple model that describes the cognitive unfolding of the experiential world and gives us a basis for internal analysis of presumptions. This week we look at the six-fold sphere, a complementary model that does roughly the same thing but breaks down the process of meaning construction along a different dimension. I regard the contemplations of the aggregates and of the six-fold sphere as the most important exercises in the Satipatthana. Here are the Buddha's instructions for the six-fold sphere. Again, because a bhikkhu abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena in terms of the six internal and exterior spheres. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating phenomena as phenomena in terms of the six internal and exterior spheres? Here, a bhikkhu understands the I. He understands forms, and he understands the fetter, that arises dependent on both, and he also understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen fetter, how there comes to be the abandoning of the arisen fetter, and how there comes to be the future non-arising of the abandoned fetter. He understands the ear, he understands sounds, he understands the nose, he understands odors, he understands the tongue, he understands flavors, he understands the body, he understands tangibles, he understands the mind sense, he understands phenomena, and he understands the fetter that arises dependent on both, and he understands also how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen fetter and how there comes to be the abandoning of the arisen fetter, and how there comes to be the future non-arising of the abandoned fetter. The six spheres refer to the realms of the senses, vision, audition, olfaction, gestation, sensation, and introspection, overseen by the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind sense. We observe the encounter of the sense faculty with its respective sense field, and we observe the conditions under which harmful consequences play out or fail to play out as a result. Like the aggregates, the six-fold spheres claim to account for the entirety of our world of experience. In fact, the Buddha left us with a little poem about this. In the six, the world has arisen. In the six, it holds concourse. On the six, themselves depending. In the six, it has woes. 
The parallels to the aggregates are apparent. First, both deal with cognitive processing. Second, sense fields are highlighted in each case. In the aggregates, all sense fields are collapsed under form, but for the sense spheres, they're differentiated into form, sound, odor, taste, bodily sensations, and phenomena, where form refers specifically to visible form, that is, shapes and colors. Third, reference is made to the harmful consequences of cognitive processes. In the aggregates, these harmful consequences are identified with appropriation, and in the sixfold sphere with the fetters. Fetters are inconsistently defined in the Buddhist teachings, but are always something we want to get rid of, like the woes in the little poem. Finally, each model results in the cognizance of objects, the home of presumptions. I assume cognizance is implicit as one of the fetters in the description of the contemplation of the sixfold sphere, because cognizance occurs as an explicit component of the sixfold sphere in most other texts. For instance, in another discourse we have, The six classes of cognizance should be understood, so it was said, and with reference to what was this said. Dependent on the eye and forms, eye cognizance arises, Dependent on the ear and sounds, ear cognizance arises. Dependent on the nose and odors, nose cognizance arises. Dependent on the tongue and flavors, tongue cognizance arises. Dependent on the body and tangibles, body cognizance arises. Dependent on the mind and phenomena, mind cognizance arises. So it was with reference to this that it was said the six classes of cognizance should be understood. In fact, the co-arising of the three, I plus form plus I cognizance, is defined as I contact, ear plus sound plus ear cognizance, is defined as ear contact, etc. Many teachers and scholars refer to form sounds and so on as sense objects or external objects rather than as sense fields. I find it highly misleading to call the sense field an object because it suggests a process whereby an object out there, let's say a bird, interacts with the eye or the ear, etc., and then cognizance of the bird arises as a result, completing the contact. Simple enough, but this is misleading for several reasons. First, a form or a sound is not a bird. Form, sound, etc. are undifferentiated sense impressions prior to interpretation. This is particularly clear in the case of form, rupa in Pali, which was a technical term widely discussed in the early Upanishads long before the Buddha. Cognitively, they are raw impressions produced by shapes and colors on the retina, 
or vibrations of the eardrum. Second, the bird interacting with the eye is a presumption about what happens prior to cognition. It may well be true, but the bird is not directly observable in experience prior to the internal cognitive processing produced by the sixfold sphere, where the bird finally arises only as a resultant external object, that is, the meaning carried by cognizance. This is how contact with an external object is achieved internally. George Berkeley noted some 300 years ago, When I hear a coach drive along the street, immediately I perceive only the sound. But from the experience I have had that such a sound is connected with a coach, I am said to hear a coach. Third, the Buddha is careful to avoid the word external in association with the sense fields. In internal analysis, the Pali word Bahida is consistently used for external, but a different word, Bahira, is consistently used in describing form, sound, and so on in the context of the sixfold sphere. Both Bahida and Bahira are often carelessly translated as external in English translations. Outside of technical usage, both are similar in meaning, but I translate bahira as exterior rather than external, since in Pali it would have been chosen to refer to the exterior covering of a house, for instance. We say exterior paint, not external paint. But mostly this reflects the terminological distinction that the Buddha takes pains to maintain, and we should respect that distinction. In short, external defines the upper bound of internal analysis, the constructed reference to objects presumed to exist out there, while exterior defines the lower bound of internal analysis yet to be interpreted sense impressions. Between these two lie eye, ear, nose, and so on. And indeed, while visual form, sound, odor, etc. are called collectively the exterior sphere, eye, ear, nose, etc. are called collectively the internal sphere in the terminology of the sixfold sphere. I hope this makes sense because it's very important. In short, visual sense impressions, forms, impinge on the eye. That is exterior. The eye processes these impressions and cognizance results. That is internal. Cognizance carries a meaning. It refers to an object, the bird, much as a string of words can refer to an object. That is external. There, a simple model of cognition consisting of moment-to-moment experiential observables, all the way suitable for internal analysis and satipatthana, consistent with the meanings of the Pali words and also consistent with the parallel aggregate model. 
the external object becomes the first of a series of fetters, I dare say to the extent it is a product of presumptions. Wait a second, we have not yet discussed in what sense the I is observable moment to moment. One's first thought might be that the I refers to the two round things each of us has embedded in the middle of our face, the ear to the thing sprouting from the sides of our head with a hole in the middle and so on. However, that does not seem like a very fruitful topic of observation, except as part of body contemplation. It makes the eye pretty much fixed and permanent. Moreover, it does not represent how we naturally experience the eye moment to moment, nor reveal the role of the eye in cognition. Rather, the eye is best viewed as a probe, comparable to a thermometer, an oscilloscope, or even a Mars probe. A probe is something we place into a rich sense field where sense data can be detected, auditory, visual, electrical data, temperature, pressure, or whatever, in order to gain meaningful intelligence, a reading, degrees Fahrenheit, a three-dimensional MRI scan, DNA sequences, or whatever. A probe performs some degree of interpretation for us in order to produce a meaningful result, sometimes quite complex analysis, as in the case of an MRI scanner. Similarly, an eye is a probe. If we place the eye into a visual field, it returns a reading the cognizance of an object or situation. We experience positioning the eye in a sense field, for instance, as we peer over a fence, then experience the reading, our neighbor's dog and our garbage can. A probe can be an instrument that does the probing, or it can be the probing itself. The probing itself is what can be observed moment to moment. We observe the arising of impressions in the visual field, the process of interpretation, which might involve feeling perception and formations, as in the aggregates exercise, and we observe the reading as an object that exists in the world out there. Then we move on to examining the probing of the auditory field, and so on. In this way, he abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena internally, externally, and both internally and externally. The phenomena we contemplate externally are whatever objects of cognizance arise in performing this exercise. Their internal evidence are the sense impressions from which they are derived. Holding sense impressions against cognized objects, much as Berkeley held up the sound against the coach, is contemplating both internally and externally, and reveals the degree of presumption that must be involved in getting from one to the other. In addition, 
what we contemplate externally might once again alternatively be the self itself. For the eye, ear, etc., itself is easily identified with the self. As the Buddha tells us, the eye is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. He goes on to say the same thing for ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. Breaking the self down in this way is reminiscent of the body parts contemplation for deconstructing the body. Or else he abides contemplating in phenomena their nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in phenomena their nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in phenomena their nature of both arising and vanishing. Once again, what is presumed to exist also comes with a presumption of relative permanence. But presuming permanence cannot be justified when its conditions are impermanent. The Buddha makes this argument explicitly in the present context. If anyone says, the I is self, that is not tenable. The rise and fall of the I are discerned, and since its rise and fall are discerned, it would follow, myself rises and falls. That is why it is not tenable for anyone to say, the I is self. Thus, the I is not self. If anyone says forms are self, dot, 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 that is why it is not tenable for anyone to say forms are self. Thus, the I is not self. Forms are not self. The Buddha goes on to say the same things concerning ear, nose, and so on. The same argument holds for any object that arises in the sixfold sphere. We've been investigating the eye forms, eye cognizance, and the eye contact which consummates the process. Recall that we were also asked to investigate the fetters. I suggested that the fetters begin with eye contact, ear contact, and the rest, which is with the presumption of substantial objects. The Buddha explains this in another discourse. Bhikkhus, when one does not know and see the eye as it actually is, when one does not know and see visible forms as they actually are, when one does not know and see eye cognizance as it actually is, when one does not know and see eye contact as it actually is, when one does not know and see as it actually is what is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that arises with eye contact as condition, then... One is inflamed by lust for the eye, for forms, for eye cognizance, for eye contact, for what is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant that arises with eye contact as condition. When one abides inflamed by lust, fettered, infatuated, contemplating gratification, then the five aggregates of appropriation are built up for oneself in the future, 
and one's craving, which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight and lust and delights in this and that. One's bodily and mental troubles increase. One's bodily and mental torments increase. One's bodily and mental fevers increase. And one experiences bodily and mental suffering. The fetters are serious stuff. On the other hand, the successful contemplation of the sixfold sphere will have enormously beneficial consequences for the relief of the fetters and for the relief of suffering. Those familiar with the 12 links of dependent co-arising might recognize how this last passage closely follows this causal chain. Next week, I want to describe the general role of dependent co-arising in the contemplation of phenomena. Then, in two weeks, I plan to return with the contemplation of the seven factors of awakening. Thank you.